Well, it's been a minute. Things have been pretty busy around here. We had the Created Connect series and then an elder retreat planning for the next year of the church. Then we had our Pinecrest family retreat and pastoral planning meeting and a ton of other meetings. And then I got really sick. And for the last couple of weeks, I haven't had to preach, which was nice, but I also got really sick, which was not so nice. The only upside of that is it allowed me to answer this huge backlog of emails from people who sent all these questions. So some of you had questions waiting in my queue for the last several weeks, and I finally got around to them in the last week and sent you big emails, <laughs> which I hope gave helpful answers. But what I haven't been able to do, mostly because of the, the sickness and then all the other busyness, is actually record these questions for other people. So I hope that this will be helpful for some of you. Here's what we're going to look at today. Is there evidence for Jesus, especially outside of the Bible? How can I make more friends? Is it okay to skip church for sports? Do any other religions have a faith-based salvation? And what about the legalization of gay marriage? Boy, these are great questions. And this is just a fraction. I now have a backlog of probably well over 100 really interesting questions that I would love to record an answer for and get it out there for you. But we're just going to do these five today. The first one is, how do we know the biblical Jesus really existed? It's a question that younger people often have, whether or not they grew up in the church. If they grew up in the church, they may have been raised with stories of Jesus from biblical sources, but then they grow up and they learn that the tooth fairy's not real and Santa's not real and the Easter bunny's not real. By the way, parents, if you had kids listening to this, I'm so sorry. I should have warned you about that. But they listen to all these children's stories and then they think, well, is Jesus real or was he just a fairy tale too? Do we know that these happened? And of course, if you've been listening to me for very long in my messages and um, somewhat in the podcast, I think we've talked about the different evidence outside the Bible to verify its accuracy for a lot of different things. Today, we're just going to focus on Jesus. Did he really exist? Is there evidence outside of the Bible that proves it? Now, the first thing I want to mention is that all historians, whether Christian or not, agree there was a real historical Jesus of Nazareth. There's a, an abundance of evidence for that. Some people in the general population may question his existence, but no trained historian questions his existence as a historical person. Then there's question about the story of Jesus, though, what the Bible represents. Did, did the things in the Bible really happen? Obviously, the biggest one being the resurrection. I'm not going to get into that necessarily today. This question is about the existence of Jesus, not everything he did. But Part of our evidence for Jesus's existence has to do with some of the things that he did or was involved in. For instance, one of those is the story of Pontius Pilate. And, and until um, a few decades ago, people did not think Pontius Pilate was a real person in the secular world. They thought that he was someone made up as a part of the Jesus narrative. Jesus of Nazareth existed, but Pontius Pilate, there was no evidence for him until 1961 when they discovered what's now called the Pilate Inscription. This is a limestone block from 2,000 years ago that mentions Pontius Pilate as the prefect of Judea. And it confirms in the archaeological record that aspect of the biblical account, which is directly a part of the story of Jesus. Now, I should also note that the Bible itself is evidence, not necessarily the English translation that you have, but the thousands of ancient manuscripts that exist in museums and archives around the world that your translation is based on. There are, those are thousands of old copies of manuscripts that are remarkably similar, very few differences. They're an incredible attestation to the historical account of Jesus and the existence of Jesus. Literally thousands of old documents that point to his existence. These are 
copies of John's manuscript, copies of Mark's manuscript, copies of Matthew's manuscript. They're all remarkably identical. They weren't originally combined into one book, so they're all different eyewitness accounts that claim to be eyewitness accounts of these events. We we have more evidence for the historical existence of Jesus than most characters in human history beyond a couple hundred years ago. So those are historical evidence for Jesus, archaeological evidence, these manuscripts for Jesus and the, the stories about his life. And the fact that those old manuscripts include many unflattering descriptions of the disciples and of the authors of the manuscripts in some cases suggests that these are not made up stories, but real accounts of history, or at least attempts at at a real account of history. The fact that the Messiah in them isn't some powerful conquering hero, but a mild, compassionate, and ultimately tortured and killed Messiah also suggests that this is not manufactured for a political movement or a hoax. There are numerous writings from the Apostle Paul that talk about eyewitnesses, not only of Jesus living, but also his death and resurrection. And those old manuscript copies of Paul are also historical evidence. And the the fact that they make an effort to point out the eyewitnesses shows that they intend to be taken as history, not mythology or allegory. They're not just some story. At least they claim to be um, referring to eyewitness accounts, not just teaching spiritual truths, but accurately recording things that happen. Now, moving outside the biblical manuscripts, the greatest Roman historian, Tacitus, wrote about Jesus being put to death on a cross by Pontius Pilate and said that, quote, a great superstition broke out, unquote, after this, after Jesus' death, a great superstition broke out, which led to Nero eventually persecuting and killing followers of Jesus in all sorts of gruesome ways. That's what Tacitus wrote. So not only does Tacitus confirm that Jesus existed, he confirms the details of his death, that that Pontius Pilate was involved, and the persecution of Christians, just as the Bible states. So there's outside biblical evidence. Then we go on the Jewish side. The Jewish historian Josephus writes about Jesus as well. Tacitus wrote a few decades after Jesus, but Josephus was born around the same time that Jesus died. And Josephus wrote that Jesus was a wise man who had many followers among Jews and Greeks. He did amazing feats. Josephus also says that Jesus was condemned to be crucified by Pontius Pilate and that afterward his followers claim he came back to life and that a group of people started following him and being called Christians. And then in another writing, Josephus mentions that Jesus says that he was called the Christ and says he had a brother named James. So again, the historical non-Christian writing confirms on the Jewish side and the Roman side the details of the biblical record of Jesus, not just that he existed, but even the details the Bible mentions about him and his death and the claims of resurrection. Josephus, by the way, also mentions John the Baptist and that Herod had him put to death. So there's a lot of corroboration there. There are other old documents from the first century that talk about this as well. There's, uh, in in not as um, directive terms, there's a philosopher in Syria that talks about the Jews killing their king, but noting that he lives on because of the new law he brought to people. So that's a very interesting way to put it. Pliny the Younger mentioned that Christians would sing hymns to Christ as someone would to a god. And there are other various references like this to Christ and early Christians who really believed in a literal Jesus Christ. So we have very strong evidence, not only in the Bible, but outside the Bible for the existence of Jesus. The details about his story, his brother James is being called Christ, his trial with Pontius Pilate, his death by crucifixion, the claim that he rose from the dead, 
his death sparking a movement that included lots of Jews and Gentiles and didn't die out after that. So yes, there's a lot of evidence for the biblical Jesus in history, even outside the Bible. Is it okay to be involved in youth sports if it takes someone away from church or takes a family away from church? This is actually a question that came from another pastor, not a pastor in our church. Now, let's be clear. The Bible says that being a part of the body of Christ and actively involved with God's family and serving and using your gifts and listening to the teaching, singing together, meeting together regularly, that these are all essential things for followers of Jesus. So we want to follow God's instructions on this. But our church meets on Sundays and other things get scheduled on Sundays too. So should I never do anything else on Sunday? Or can my kids never do Sunday sports? Are these other things uh, that besides church, in this example, kids sports, are they important enough to their development that maybe we skip church whenever there's another activity happening at the same time? I think we can run into trouble if we advocate for an extreme position here. There's nothing in the Bible that says you can never miss a church gathering. You've probably heard that phrase. We were in the church every time the doors were open. Well, in our church, the doors are open every day for most of the day because there are always events happening at our church. So that is not the goal here. There's nothing in the Bible that says you have to meet at a certain day or at a certain time. Uh, There are sometimes people will get uh, a little upset if we don't have church when they're used to having church. And they attribute in their mind a spiritual significance to that, but it's actually an idol. It's turning a tradition into something that has spiritual sacredness to them. And that is idolatry, actually. That's the definition of idolatry, taking the secular and and just the traditional and make it into a sacred spiritual thing. As if God said, you must worship on Sunday morning at you know 9 and 1045 or something like that. And that's not what the Bible says. We got to be real careful about that. It is interesting to me how sometimes the, the people who might get upset because we might change up our Sunday service plans see no issue at all with them taking a vacation for a weekend and missing on that Sunday. So there's definitely a double standard involved there. So we have to be real careful about being legalistic about, well, we must be in church this number of times or every week or on this day at this time. There's a lot. There's actually a lot of flexibility that's allowed for in the Bible. Not a lot of legalism on this. There's nothing in the Bible that says you can't travel for a weekend. There's nothing in the Bible that says we can't cancel church for a weekend if we need to, either for weather or some other purpose or mix up our schedule for that day and say, you know what, we're actually going to do our services in the evening instead of the morning, or uh, we're going to do them on Saturday night instead of Sunday night or Sunday morning. So there's literally nothing wrong with that biblically speaking. By the way, Paul and his team were traveling all over the place. And, and everywhere they went that there was a synagogue, they would make a point to go to the synagogue when they went there. And sometimes they were kicked out of the synagogue. And so they found other places to go meet with Christians regularly. The importance is the, the regularly, not some sort of a rigidness of every week or every Sunday or at this time or anything like that. Now we can go to the other extreme and say that our kids' sports are so important to their development or so important to their social life, or whatever we want to put in there, that we're going to rarely go to church, or we'll stop going for a while so they can do all their games and their tournaments and things. But I think that's a mistake too. The Bible tells us in Hebrews 10 not to forsake gathering together. And that certainly seems like forsaking gathering together. It doesn't say how many times, but you know, if we're going to leave for an extended period um, or be gone most of the time, that certainly seems like forsaking to me. The Bible says that we're supposed to use our gifts to serve 
in the body of Christ. Actually, when the Bible talks about serving, it's most often talking about serving other believers. And if we're not involved in using our gifts within the church, the body of Christ, then we're not fulfilling the command that God has given to us. The Bible says, says that we're supposed to be in community with each other, with other believers, doing all the one another's, holding each other accountable, helping each other grow. And there are dozens and dozens of other one another's that we're supposed to do together. That happens in the context of the church and not just the building, but the people of the church. But we come together corporately to do a lot of those things together, like singing and praying together, which are commands. And certainly our, our groups are a huge part of that as well. So I would say that choosing sports over church on a regular basis, choosing sports over church, sends a very important message to your kids about what your priorities are. Parents can get as wrapped up in kids' sports as the kids do, and it might be unthinkable to them to put aside a sport to prioritize church. But if that's you, fast forward 10 or 20 years, your kid has learned not to prioritize God's family. And maybe they even question the validity of their faith since they didn't see their parents making it a priority and the community of faith as being a priority to them. And I don't know if there's any studies on this, but I would strongly suspect the families who make sports a major priority and mostly stop attending church see their kids leave the church at probably much higher rates. Statistically, we know that most of our kids are not going to play professionally. In fact, most of them won't even compete at the college level. So what are we going for here? What do we want here? Do we want a kid or eventually an adult who used to compete every week at a high level and won a bunch of trophies, but doesn't really care about Jesus anymore? Or do we want a kid who grew up with parents that clearly honored God, prioritized God's family, shepherded their family into appropriate levels of sports involvement while making sure God's church was always a priority and that they were always involved there? I'm, I'm fairly confident that any decent Christian parent is going to say, well, I want my kids to continue to value faith 10, 20 years from now. And their high school sports trophies aren't going to matter that much. 10 or 20 years from now. At least, at least I hope they won't compared to everything else they have going on in life. So that should guide us when we're making our decisions about what to prioritize. And I'm not saying this is an easy decision. I think each family needs to wrestle with this. And of course, you can substitute sports with anything else that you might be looking at that would take you away from church. I remember a couple of years ago, there was a, a family that had a difficult situation and there were a few families in our church that asked me about them and asked me if I knew them. I said, no, I'd never even heard of them before. And they were shocked. How do you not know these people? And then I asked all of our pastors, hey, have you guys ever heard of this family before? People are wondering why I don't know who they are. And every one of our pastors, including the ones that have been around for a long time, said, nope, never heard of them before. And so then I went back and tried to figure this out. Like, how is it possible that some of the people in our church know this family really well and are shocked that None of the pastors know this family. And then we learned that for several years, because of kids' sports, they just had not attended other than Christmas and Easter. And so none of us knew who they were. And I think that's an example of the extreme where you just become so disconnected from the community of Christ because you've allowed kids' sports to basically take over and said, we're not going to be involved in church except rarely because kids' sports are so important to us. Now, is it possible to still be involved in sports 
and have a priority of the church. Yeah, it usually means having some kind of balance and being willing to say no to some of the things involved in those sports. So it's very situational and personal. But I know of another family whose kids are very involved in club sports. Sometimes they have tournaments on the weekends, but they're also very involved in church and serving in significant ways. And sometimes they say no to other things so that church is a priority. And sometimes they go away for tournaments on the weekend. What's the message they're sending to their kids? Well, we don't have to be in church every time the door's opened. That would kind of be legalistic, but we're still going to make church a priority for us. Sometimes we'll be away for a weekend, but if it takes us away every weekend, then that's a deal breaker for us. I think that's a pretty good balance to have. In my own family, my kids will have games on Sundays sometimes, uh, and sometimes double headers right during church. So we're clear with the coaches up front. We can make some of these, not all of these. Sometimes that means that they play an early game and then go to the second service at our church. Sometimes that means that they miss games on Sundays, and we're just clear about that up front. Um, there's one other thought that I want to offer on this issue for parents, anyone that their kids are involved in sports that can kind of be a, a redemptive element of this. There are some pastors who will preach really hardcore against kids sports or any sport that has any involvement on Sunday because it takes you away from church. I don't necessarily think that's right. And I think that there's an opportunity actually to view your kids sports as a mission field. It's not an excuse to deprioritize church or abandon church. That's not healthy. Um, but I also don't think you have to feel guilty for not being at church every single week. As long as you're being missional. Now, I think you should make it a priority. I think it should be most of the weeks that you're connected to the body of Christ. That's what would say that it's a priority for you. But when you are away for that tournament, when you are at that game, are you having conversations that make it clear that you're a Christian? Are you having spiritual conversations with the other parents? Are you asking questions and getting to know them and getting into their life and being missional? Are you communicating in a way that represents Christ well during the games, when you talk to the refs, when you talk to the coaches, other parents? Do they know that you're a follower of Christ and are you open enough about your faith that you're actually leading people to Jesus through that mission field. Kids sports is a great mission field. So be a light for Jesus there through that. And then still obviously make the gathering of the church together a priority for you, not just for your sake, which is important, but also for your kids. Please don't say take anything I say here as a reason to be legalistic. You should pray. You should ask God for wisdom. You should seek out counsel from otherwise entrusted Christians. A lot of this is very situational, which is why God gives us the Holy Spirit and tells us to pray for wisdom and also gives us each other for wise counsel. So if you have a specific situation that you're curious about, and many parents have asked me about this with their specific situations, I'm not going to cover all those nuances here. Then just ask somebody that you trust or shoot me an email and we can talk about it more. Next question. How do I get connected with people when I'm not naturally really good at that? This is something I have heard from a number of people lately at our church. We actually did a series on this called Hello, My Name Is a few years ago with a lot of great principles. So let me just give you some of the highlights here. Most people are not naturally extroverts. And even if they are, they may not be very comfortable breaking into social circles and making new friends, particularly when they move to a new area or, or move into a new church. But we all crave close, close relationships and God wired us to be in community. 
There are three main things that I think can really help if you're looking to get connected in a church. The first one is just an understanding you need to have about how God designed us. And this is going to solve a lot of problems. So you have to get this. God has designed people to only have a limited number of relational connectors. God has designed you and me with a limited number of relational connectors. He did not build us to be able to have 50 really close friends. You can have a few. For some people, it may be two or three. For some people, it may be five or 10. But there's a certain amount of people that you can be really close with. And then there's a larger number you can be friends with. And there's a larger number that you just know as acquaintances, but you don't know really well. That's how God designed us to work. So understand that just because you have open relational connectors, which is common after switching churches or a move or a job transition or something like that, it doesn't mean that the person you're talking to has open relational connectors. They may have all the close connections that they can handle right now, and that's okay. That doesn't mean not to try to connect with people. It actually gives you more confidence to connect with people. The reason that people don't put themselves out there to build friendships is what? The fear of rejection. What you need to understand is that a lot of the time, if it seems like the person is rejecting you, they're not. They simply have full relational connectors. Go into friendship building with that mindset. Be proactive, ask people to lunch, invite them to do things together, give opportunities to explore the possibilities of friendship, but don't hold it against the other person if it doesn't take off. And don't wallow in self-pity thinking that it's a rejection of you. Sometimes it's just not a good fit because of personality or interests. Um, sometimes it's just they have full relational connectors. And so what you feel as a soft rejection of them not reciprocating the interest in relationship that you have interested in them, the same level of energy back, it may just be their relational connectors are full. It's usually not someone trying to be mean or cliquish, even though it is often interpreted that way. That is a misinterpretation of the situation in nearly every instance. It is usually you're, you've got someone with open relational connectors trying to form a relationship with someone who has full relationship connectors. So what do, what do you have to do? You have to go find people who have open relational connectors. Usually the best way to do that is to get involved with groups who have other new people in them. And so whether it's some kind of a new connect group at the church or a new small group at the church or uh, going through Rooted is a place where this would be great in our church um, or a new membership class where you've got other people that are new to the church, but you want to get involved in things where you're finding people that are new because the more new you are, the more likely you have open relational connectors. And so often if people come in and they're brand new, they have a hard time breaking into the social circles that already exist and they walk away thinking, oh, it's a click. No, it's God's design. God has designed us with a limited number of close relational connectors. And if those get full, we just can't add more to it. I can't have 20 best friends. It doesn't work that way. I can have a few really good close friends. And then I can have, you know, a few dozen friends. But if one of those friends wants to become a really close friend and I don't have the open relational connectors, that is that doesn't mean that I'm being cliquish. That just means my relational connectors are full. And that, that means that the rejection is not a, a negative thing. It's just, yep, relational connectors are full. Fine people have open relational connectors. This will help so many people who get judgy 
about other people not reciprocating their desire for a close relationship. It, it's hypocritical. It's self-centered. It's prideful. It's arrogant. You've got to rethink that mindset. Cut yourself some slack when it comes to finding people who have the openness for a relationship and cut other people some slack too. Now, second thing, if you want to have friends, you have to be friendly. You can't just show up on time, sit in the service and leave when it's done. You have to get there early and find people to introduce yourself to and hang around afterward and invite people out to lunch. Try out a Sunday morning group. It's an easy place to just show up and start meeting people who might be kind of in some of the same stage of life or asking the same types of questions, but you've got to be proactive. You cannot just come for the bare minimum and expect this to just happen. One thing that I see a lot of people get confused by is they come into a church and they have an expectation, I think, that the people who are in that church and really plugged in are going to then reach out and pull them into the same kind of social circle that they already have formed. And that's just not how things usually work. I mean, occasionally it works that way, especially if you already knew someone who was well-connected, it might be easy for you to plug in and get connected with an existing group. But honestly, what works best is usually just starting a new group. And, and that's okay. It's good to have multiple groups of different circles of people who, you know, they can all be acquaintances together, all be on good terms with each other, but you're going to have different sort of clusters of good friends in the church. And if, if you're not a good fit in one right now, and you're not able to break into one right now, um, that's okay. Try, start to build a new one. Go find those people. You know, I, I, one time I was talking with a guy, this is in a previous church. He came over to me and said, I'm just so fed up. I'm so frustrated. Um, no one wants to be my friend. And this is a guy that had been around the church actually for several years, but he said, nobody wants to be my friend. And uh, I listened to him for a while. And then I asked him to look around the room and, and point out to me all of the people that you see right now sitting by themselves. Why don't you go introduce yourself to them? Why don't you go be the type of person that you're hoping someone will be for you? Go reach out to them. And he kind of hemmed and hawed and he didn't really feel like doing that. Um, and then ironically, as we were talking, someone came up and invited him out to lunch and he turned them down. So he, he wasn't being proactive and he wasn't even being friendly. You have to be the kind of intentional, friendly person and then specifically look for those people who maybe also have open relational connectors. Okay, that was two things. The third thing is you need to know how to talk about things that develop deep friendships. There is a pattern here that if you will learn it, it's very simple, it's just four things. It will help you take your conversations to a deeper level. Don't try to rush this, but understand that if you get stuck at the first or second level, you're never gonna see a deep relationship form. And the failure to understand this is why a lot of people get frustrated that their relationship stays more shallow than they would like for it to. So here's the pattern. Just memorize this. Our relationships tend to form along these conversational stages. Number one, the things we can see. How's the weather today? What about that game last night? That kind of stuff. Number two, basic personal info. What do you do for a living? Where did you grow up uh, in St. Louis? Where did you go to high school? Uh, what, what was your history like, your background, those sorts of things, information about you? Three, so that's one and two. Now we're getting to three, a little bit deeper level of conversation. What are your dreams? What are your desires? What are your hopes for the future? This is a new level of depth in conversation, not just the stuff around us, not just current events, not things going on right now, not politics, 
but what do you hope to see happen in the future for you? What are your, what are your goals in life? What are you doing? That's level three. And that's a good level to get to. But if you really want to go deeper in a relationship, then you've got to, at some point, move into number four, which is regrets, losses, and pain. That's the deepest level of relationship. Conversations about those things require a certain level of trust, so you shouldn't rush into that. But if you live in stage one or two, you will never feel like you have a deep, close relationship with that person. Until you get into dreams and desires and regret, and then regrets, losses, and pain, that's when you get into a deeper level of relationship. Oftentimes, the setting for those conversations and the trust required to go there well without rushing it requires shared experiences. So some of the best relationship building advice I can give you is try to create opportunities for people with open relational connectors to go together and do fun things together, whether it's axe throwing or playing a game together, a board game together, or going on a trip somewhere, um, any kind of vacation. Uh, in the past, we've done whitewater rafting with different couples. We've done all sorts of trips and things together. Those shared experiences, all the families that went to Pinecrest a week ago, they all had some shared experiences. It doesn't matter if the experiences are good or bad, even in some cases, as long as everybody you know doesn't get after each other and on each other's throats while they're doing it. But even you know at Pinecrest, it was wet, it was cold, and the 200 plus people that went there are always going to have that memory. And there are families that I got to know way better that I never would have gotten to know at all if I hadn't been there. So shared experiences, so important. Look for people with open relational connectors and don't judge them if theirs are already full. Just move on, find somebody else. Be proactive and intentional. If you want to have friends, you got to be friendly and follow the four stages of depth of conversation to build relationships and do that in the context, ideally, of some shared experiences that you can have. And that's what makes relationships go deep and last a long time. Next question. Is Christianity the only religion that relies on faith for salvation? So I think that the answer would be that there are other religions that do include faith as an element of salvation, but as far as I know, only Christianity relies exclusively on faith. And I'm talking about evangelical Christianity. We've been going through the book of Acts at church. In fact, John just took us back there this last Sunday. And so we've seen over and over Peter and Paul make the points that salvation is by faith and not by works or not by obeying the law. In many religions, their version of salvation includes faith, but also requires works. So in Islam, salvation requires faith in Allah, but also good deeds like prayer, fasting, giving, and the Mecca pilgrimage, if you can do that. In Jainism, you need right faith, right knowledge, right conduct. The conduct includes being nonviolent, truthful, not stealing, being compassionate. So you, oh, and you also need to renounce worldly attachment. So all that's in addition to faith. In Zoroastrianism, you need good thoughts, good words, and good deeds. A righteous life is a part of gaining salvation in Zoroastrianism. For the Sikhs, it's all about devotion, selfless service, and adherence to the teachings of the gurus, and that brings salvation, which is becoming one with the divine in their view. And all the religions that borrow extensively from Christianity, like the Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses, make works an essential part of salvation. So yeah, it's pretty much a defining characteristic of false theology from our perspective. True Christianity has this amazing focus on the grace of God that's just missing in all the counterfeits. For the others, it's all about what you can do for God. 
instead of what God has done for you. And this is also the major difference we have with most Catholics and with the official Catholic teaching. Though they have a much more nuanced way of talking about it in academic circles, we don't believe that doing good or giving to the church or confessing to a priest or having your wedding in the Catholic church or your infant baptized contributes anything to the salvation formula. It's faith in Jesus Christ for salvation that God accepts. And anything extra you think you can add to earn favor is insulting to the sacrifice of Jesus. That's not to say that there aren't Catholics who believe in salvation by faith alone, but it seems the vast majority of Catholics and the official Catholic teaching includes elements of works-based salvation. Even trying to get some of the works of the dead saints applied to your account if you don't have enough in the end to get you out of purgatory. So evangelical Christianity does seem to be unique in having a salvation based only on grace and not works. Should Christians be against the legalization of gay marriage? Now, to answer this question, we first have to answer another question. What is the biblical role of government? Is the government a moral enforcement agency or is it a harm reduction agency? And biblically speaking, I'm going to be very brief here. There's way more we could say, but I'm going to try to answer this one quickly. The government is a harm reduction agency, not a moral enforcement agency. Nowhere are we told that secular governments are supposed to police and enforce morality unless it's something that causes harm to a person. Governments are supposed to protect people from criminals and foreign adversaries. You know from our series Created to Connect that a same-sex marriage is not an actual marriage in the biblical sense. And same-sex sexual activity is a rebellion against God's design. We've covered that. But is there a compelling harm or a protection reason why the government should step in and not allow same-sex unions? I don't think so. But our thinking on this has been very warped as a society because the government has been so involved in marriage for so long here. And that sort of gets at what I really think is the answer to this whole question, which is I don't think the government should be involved in marriages at all. Replace any government involvement with marriage and marriage licenses and certificates and all that with a legal designation of a civil union and leave marriage to the churches. Part of what makes this issue difficult for us and a hot contentious issue is that our secular government has its fingers in an inherently religious institution, marriage. Without the Bible, there's really no reason for traditional marriage. I mean, there'd be no instruction to tell us this is the only way. Without the Bible, there's no reason to not have polygamy and sleeping around and same-sex relationships and all of these. They're in direct contrast to marriage, but why? Because of what the Bible teaches about marriage as a lifelong covenant between a man and a woman. So take the Bible out of it, And it's hard to see why enforcing an arrangement of traditional marriage makes any sense for a secular government, not by force of law. So the only way to draw a consistent line in my mind is just to get government out of that concept entirely. The government should have provisions for civil unions. The church should conduct marriages. Someone married by the church can also get a civil union from the government for taxes, medical benefits, parental rights, all those things. But we don't need the government controlling the definition for what marriage actually is. And that's what got us into this situation in the first place. It's the government meddling in what is really a faith-based institution. 
And that is why it's so difficult to talk about this issue and find the right solution without being um, hypocrites and inconsistent in what we say, because really the government probably shouldn't be involved in what is marriage at all. Just have a civil union and call it a day. All right. Those are our five questions for today. Um, how angry did you get at different questions? I don't know. Were there ones that you agreed with or disagreed with? Or do you have follow-up questions? You can let me know at pastor at efree.org. Hope you have a great week. Bye.